Good morning, everybody. Good morning, you all right? Not too stuffy in here? Me okay? Got a bit of breeze coming through? That's nice, keep us awake. Well, if anything's going to keep us awake, chapter like this, a passage like this, absolutely extraordinary. I'm quite excited to be unpacking it this morning. I'm going to chuck my Bible on that, I think. Oh, let's do that, that will work. Brilliant. Okay, if we could bring up the uh, PowerPoint. Thanks, June. So we are in this series, full series, not mini-series. Um, <laughs> uh, and it's exploring the first three chapters of Revelation, these letters to the churches that Jesus writes. But before we get there, we have this first chapter, chapter one, and Mark did a great job unpacking it last week, and uh, the first half, and we're taking it up from verse nine. Do have your Bibles out if you've got them, uh, or your phones um, uh, to read scripture as we go through because we're going to be looking at all sorts of extraordinary things. There's so much I want to say, so much that's brimming inside of me to say. I just pray that the Lord leads me uh, to say what he wants me to say this morning and that I don't preach for two hours because I easily could. Um, do you know, I received a lovely call uh, this week, um, uh, an unexpected call on Wednesday morning, I think it was, uh, and it was May, lovely May from church rang me. Now she rang me, and you think, Matt, you are blessed for May to ring you. I would be, but it was unintentional, wasn't it, May? It was a mistake. And uh, we had a chat, and we decided that I wasn't Tony. So, Tony, you're a blessed man. Uh, May was ringing you. But, actually, it was one of those God moments, because we have a lovely conversation. It really blessed my day, um, and it was so good to speak uh, to one another. And after a little while, May said, oh, I loved uh, Mark's sermon on Revelation last week, she said, oh, I love Revelation. Then she said this, such an adventure the Lord took John on, on the island of Patmos. He showed him things no one else had ever seen. I think that might just be one of the best descriptions of Revelation I've ever heard. Such an adventure the Lord took John on, on the island of Patmos, as he showed him things no one else had ever seen. I absolutely love that. On that tiny island, four by eight miles, just off the west coast of modern-day Turkey, um, the veil of heaven was literally torn open before John, and he saw the reality of the spiritual realm. He saw the great battles that are raging, that lay ahead, but he also saw the glory of God's assured victory the beautiful future of peace and recreation, when his kingdom comes in full and every tear will be wiped away. And although at times this book can be confusing, at times because it's filled with metaphor and simile, you can just think, what am I reading here? There's no denying that Revelation, this book at the back of our Bibles, is a stunning record of what Jesus showed John that day through that revelation. And the truth is, this book still utterly shakes people's lives to the very core when they read it, even today. I was 16 when this book helped me to meet with Jesus for the first time, and I gave my life to the Lord when I read Revelation 21, and I heard what his future is and who he is. I was like, Lord, if you're like that, you're going to wipe every tear from my eye. I want to follow you. And the truth is, I'm not alone. I was talking to a friend earlier who said, oh yeah, I had a non-Christian friend, he's in the army. Non-Christian friend, yeah. And he started reading the book of Revelation. I thought, oh, should I stop him? It's a bit confusing. By the end of it, 
He had surrendered his life to Jesus and was following him because he met with the living Lord. And that's possibly the greatest part of the book of Revelation. It's not just that there is future prophecy or not just that there are metaphors of events that may take place at different times. I think the most powerful thing and the single most important thing that John had revealed to him was the gobsmackingly glorious revelation of the risen and exalted Jesus. He encountered him in the most extraordinary way. And my prayer is that we will too, this term, as we go through this book, be expectant to meet with a Jesus who will transform your life. Shall I pray just as we start? Lord Jesus, King Jesus, we just humble ourselves as we turn to your word this morning. We pray that you would come and meet us through your word. Come and reveal yourself to every heart and mind this morning, I pray. Risen King, glorified Jesus, for we invite you in your precious name. Amen. Amen. So may I love the book too. I love it. I absolutely love it. Uh, as much as you do, I'm sure we can battle that out on who loves it most. Um, but as we finished our conversation, we prayed together and it was lovely. And I just uh, thank the Lord that May and I are brothers and sisters. Do you remember? And uh, we're not related by blood, but we're part of the same family of God. And May picked up on it afterwards and says, oh, I love the fact that I can call you brother. And I said, I love the fact I can call you sister. And then we said, I'm your brother, you're my sister, and there's nothing you can do about it even if you wanted to. <laughs> because that's the truth. We're part of this church family, but we're part of the family of Jesus. And May said, you know what, I've been part of this family here, a member, for 55 years. Is that what you told me, May? 55 years, she's covenanted to, promised to walk with this fellowship. And you're still doing it, May, and we honour you and we bless you. We're part of the same family of Jesus. May's one of those people that I love to tell new people, come to the fellowship about. Have you met May yet? There's lots of you I like to say that to. But, oh, have you met May? She's lovely. She'll encourage you. She'll bless you. And I know you love meeting people, don't you, May? And you love when they come and say hi too. And you love going around and seeing people. But there are all sorts of people in our lives like that, aren't there? People that you wish others could meet. I was very moved last week when Andrew Wallace shared about his mum. He just said, part of who I am is because my mum was a beautiful lady and she was an extraordinary lady who loved the Lord. And I guess Andrew would have loved us to have met her. When I think about people like this, I think about my mum's mum, my grandma. She was a godly and beautiful woman who, when she came into the room, she brought the presence of God with her. And I miss her. She's gone to be with Jesus. A long time ago now. But she's someone I'd love to say, I'd love you to meet her. And I want to tell you something. The truth is, my grandma and Andrew's mum are, if you love Jesus... Your sister's in the Lord still. Still part of your family. Alive with Jesus now. And one day, I'll meet them again. uh, And you'll meet them, maybe for the first time. The most extraordinary sense that this family of God that Jesus has 
won for us is so precious, it's so beautiful, and it's one of the core reasons why he laid down his life, not just for the individual, although it was, but so that his people together might be a family, loving one another and walking together. And as we look at this passage, as we look at the book of Revelation, the first thing I want you to note is that John, I, John, is not some far-off prophet or historical figure. Sometimes we call people from the Bible Saint John. And although I understand why we're saying they're an amazing person that God's really used, sometimes that gives them a deference and they feel like some holy figure that you might see carved on a church. That's not how John introduces himself. He introduces himself like this. I, John, your brother and your companion. John, who wrote the book of Revelation, if you love Jesus, he's your brother. Your brother wrote this, and what he saw, and what the Lord showed him. And this is what Jesus had achieved already in this early days of the Christian church. Brothers and sisters who loved one another, all saved by the same Jesus, all filled with the same spirit, all loved and cherished and baptised together in the name of Jesus and by Jesus. A family that were rooting for each other, praying for each other, sharing bread together, walking with one another, worshipping together, watching over one another in love. It's one of the great joys we all share. And I just want to say to you this morning, don't give up on church, folks. It's not perfect. You're never going to find a perfect church. You'll be disappointed if you came here thinking, wow, creature's the answer. Jesus is the answer. We're just looking at him. We won't get it all right. But don't give up on church, folks. Don't do this journey of faith alone. Jesus made us brothers and sisters, family, on this journey. I need you. You need me. We all need one another. And if you love Jesus, you're part of the family. If you're ever wondering what membership is about here at Creech, and I won't talk long on this now, but I just want to say to you, it's that. It's a way of expressing the fact that this is my family and I want to commit to walking with them together. I'll love you, will you love me back? I'll put my trust in your hands, will you put your trust in mine as we seek the heart of Jesus together, as we walk together and seek his best for this church and the world all around us as we reach out in love you want to know more about membership, it's not about being an elite Christian, it's not for the super Christians, it's not a club. It's just those that have committed and saying, hey, let's love one another, pray for one another and walk together as part of this local family. I would love to talk to you about that um, if you'd like to become a member of Creech here. You are so welcome if you love the Lord. Um, so uh, talk to me about that either afterwards or send me an email this week. I would love to hear from you. So, moving on. What was this family like uh, life like for John and his brothers and sisters in the early church? Well, it's perhaps not as lovely as we might think. John puts it this way, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. John, I'd suggest to you, does not have a career as an advertising agency professional. This is not how you sell Christianity. Come and be a Christian and join in the suffering and the kingdom and 
the perseverance, the patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. You might think he'd have gone a bit more superlative. The joy in the kingdom and the victory that are ours in Jesus. No. He says, I'm your companion, your brother, in the suffering, the sore trouble, and the kingdom, and we love that bit. Because that's breaking in, that's the justice, the love, the rule and reign of Jesus in this world, just as it is in heaven. And the patient endurance, that is the need for each one of us to actively choose to endure, to keep going. As a wise friend, who was so important to me as I became a Christian in my teenage years, would always finish cards off to me, keep on keeping on. One of the most spiritual things he could have said to me, keep on, man, keep on. Whoever you are this morning, following Jesus, don't give up. Because the truth is, although God's kingdom was breaking in in the most extraordinary ways during John's lifetime, it was only breaking in in part. For his brothers and sisters in the early church, there were hugely powerful forces at work against them, forces of violence and hatred and persecution and greed and government. That meant that this little band of followers, for them, suffering was the norm. Patient endurance was a daily reality. Friends, in the Greek written here, these all have the same article, article being the the at the beginning. They're inseparable. It's the suffering kingdom, patient endurance, all together that are ours in Jesus. They will not be separated until the day that Jesus comes again in glory. Which, friends, by the way, the book of Revelation tells you all about, and it's awesome. So you can skip ahead, skip to the end at some point when you get home and go, is it? Whoa, yeah. It's extraordinary. He is coming again. And in that day, every tear will be wiped and justice will be known. His kingdom will come. But until that day, our experiences are not always easy. For brothers and sisters around the world who are Christians, they are persecuted, killed, frightened daily for their faith. Even for us, your experience may not always be easy. Your faith may not always be strong. You may hurt or struggle or suffer. You may feel downcast. And yet, by the grace of God, John says, I'm your brother in this, as we patiently endure. As we patiently endure. So, for John, his suffering... And his endurance was very apparent. He's on this island of Patmos. Why? Because he's been talking about Jesus. John, we've told you about that. Talking about Jesus is going to get you in trouble. He's going to do it anyway. He's met Jesus. He's like, wow, Jesus. I've got to tell you about him. You'll get imprisoned on a remote island. They'll probably put you to manual labor. There's a good chance he was doing manual labor. But he still did it. He still did it. He was put there to silence him. He was put there to knock him out of the race. The Romans put him there to exhaust him, to lead him and the church around them into fear and despair. The truth is, if we look at it through the world's eyes, these Christian gatherings at this early stage probably seemed pitifully small, fairly pathetic. They were persecuted by mighty enemies. The situation was dire and dreadful and seemingly hopeless in the world's eyes. And as for John, enslaved on Patmos, 
Well, he is surely in the most pathetic and lonely position of them all. But that is to see only through the world's eyes. Revelation is about having your eyes open and seeing the reality. We quickly discover John was far from pathetic or lonely. Firstly, and I'll go real quickly through this, we read that it was on the Lord's day that he was in the spirit. Even on the island of Patmos, John kept that first day of the week special because it's the Lord's day. It's what we call Sunday. And it's the day that he knew all his brothers and sisters and all the churches in Turkey would have been gathering to worship and break bread and celebrate. Why? Because the first day of the week was the day that Jesus rose from the dead. If you're ever wondering, oh, isn't it just religious tradition that we do it with church on a Sunday? Couldn't we do it any day of the week? Of course we could. Jesus wouldn't mind, but there's reasons why we do it on a Sunday. Because we're rooted in this extraordinary story of Jesus who rose from the dead. And his brothers and sisters, our brothers and sisters, have celebrated him on the first day of the week ever since. And so John knows he's not alone, even though he might be alone on that island. He gathers on the Lord's day with all around him, even if they're far away, just as we do this morning. Brothers and sisters, right now as I'm speaking, as you're listening... Trying not to fall asleep. They're doing the same. (laughs) All around the world, worshipping Jesus, praying together. Secondly, we read he was in the spirit. Only thing I'm going to say about that is you could take everything from John. You could not take the Holy Spirit from him. He didn't need to put it on his desert island discs list, did he? It'll be my luxury item, the presence of God. No. You can't take that one away from a Christian. Nobody can take the Holy Spirit's presence from you either. So he's in the Spirit. He's especially sensitive to what the Lord is doing. He's expectant. He's waiting. And then thirdly, this is why he's not pathetic or lonely. Most significantly of all, as he's in the Spirit on the Lord's day, John's eyes and our eyes as we read it, are now open to see something that changes entirely everything, or everything entirely. Our eyes are open to see the devastating glory of the risen Jesus, who is right there with his family, as he always has been and always will be. So, let's have a quick look at this. The first indication something unusual is afoot is that John is waiting on God and he hears a voice behind him. There's no ordinary voice. He hears a voice like a loud trumpet. That great description. It's arresting. It's regal. It's powerful. It's unmissable. The voice commands John to write down on a scroll what he sees and send it to the seven churches in Asia Minor on the mainland. And at this moment, John instinctively turns around to see the voice. And as he does, in the middle of seven golden lampstands, which we learn represents the seven churches. He sees one like a son of man stood right in the middle, standing there among his people. Son of man. We know who that is. It's Jesus. John looks and he turns and he sees Jesus. What an amazing moment for any human being to lay their eyes on the King of Kings. I looked and I saw Jesus. Come on. Come on, John. What an extraordinary moment. But this is not the humbly clad Jesus of the Gospels. No. This isn't the 
beardy one who hung out with the fisherman kind of look. He's changed a little bit in his glorification. In this moment, John is gifted a rare insight into the full and devastating glory of who Jesus really is. His glory cloaked before is now fully revealed. As I said, the barrier to heaven has been torn apart. John witnesses the magnificence and splendour and power beyond description of this Jesus. And he grasps for words and he begins this extraordinary description of the Lord of Lords before him. Let's whiz through it. He writes, he's dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. This is priestly garb. This is royal garb. The hair on his head was white like wool, white as snow. All right, don't rub it in, you know, twice. It's like wool, no, it's like snow. It was so white, John's saying. This indicates dignity and wisdom and authority and age beyond age. Friends, if you have white hair, our culture says, oh, you must dye it and hide it. No, cultures throughout the world, just as it was in John's culture, white hair was something to be celebrated and honoured. Wisdom. Dignity. Come on. Amen, brother. (laughs) Love that. (laughs) And it's the same description Daniel uses. As Mark pointed out last week, Daniel's another prophet, Old Testament prophet, who, who uses his apocalyptic language to describe a vision he's seen. And it's the same words that Daniel gives to God the Father. John makes no attempt to hide that Jesus inhabits the same wisdom, the same dignity. He is the same ancient of days. Father, Son and Holy Spirit. One God, now and forevermore. If the white hair and age might make us question, hmm, is this someone who maybe lacks a bit on energy? Is they past their fighting days if they've got all this age and wisdom? No, John now looks into his eyes and he sees them flashing with energy like blazing fire. His feet, we then read, like bronze glowing in a furnace. His voice like the sound of rushing waters. Again, powerful, glorious descriptions of God himself from Ezekiel. John says in his right hand he held seven stars, which we learn are the seven spirits or characters of the church, if you like. Each one held in his care, given his favour and protection. He holds them in his hands, just as he holds all things in his hands. And coming out of his mouth, we read, was a sharp double-edged sword. And his word, it's like an offensive weapon to bring down all enemies, to divide truth from lies. He himself, Jesus, is the way, the truth and the life. He's the word at the beginning and at the end of all things. His word sustains all things, as we were singing, everything and has been and ever will be. And if that wasn't enough, John looks into the face of this devastatingly glorious Jesus and he sees the most intense, fiery, blazingly, uncomfortable, yet gloriously radiant thing he's ever witnessed. And he simply says his face is like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. This royal, dignified, blazing, glowing, thunderous, glorious, powerful, decisive, Lord, shining beyond the full strength of the scorching sun, stands before our brother John. And we read, when I saw him, in verse 17, I fell at his feet as though dead. Is there any wonder? Is there any wonder? Before his glory, none of us are left standing. Before his revealed glory, there is only one response and that's to fall friends this isn't a choice 
It's not a voluntary action. Bear with me a moment. I'm going to just gently kneel down, Jesus. No. It's down. Like death. And you might think, Matt, why have you used this phrase, devastating, to describe the glory of Jesus? I'm uncomfortable with it. I'm kind of pleased if you're uncomfortable with it, because it's an uncomfortable word. I was looking for a word like John that would describe and capture the essence of Jesus' glory here. There are different ways of understanding the word devastating. Firstly, it's something that can cause a catastrophic shock, something destructive or shattering or traumatic or overwhelming and crushing, and that's what John encountered in this glorified Jesus. Wasn't Jesus meek and mild? How lovely. No. But so too, something devastating can also be something of immense impressiveness. Something gorgeous and stunning and dazzling and striking and captivating and beautiful. And that's what John encountered too. You see, for the ordinary human being, the glorified presence of Jesus really is devastating. It's incomprehensibly overwhelming, folks, in his power and beauty alike. For those who in pride mock God in this life, or feel they can stand against him with their wit or schemes or brawn or lies, for the unrepentantly wicked and the violent and the evil and the oppressor and the unjust who laugh in their spoils of war and injustice, get drunk on the blood of the poor and the hurting and the weak. The Bible tells us that this Jesus, this conquering, glorified Jesus, will one day stand against them and they will be destroyed. I make no apology for telling you that's what Jesus says. Jesus is the supreme commander of all the universe. One day every knee will bow before him. And even for one who knows him and loves him as John does in this moment, in the presence of his unveiled glory, he falls as if dead. See, this moment John gets that rarest of glimpses into who Jesus really, really is. And I think very few had that glimpse before him. Ezekiel did, I think. Daniel did, I think. I have a sneaky feeling John the Baptist might have, you know. Before he met Jesus, he knew who he was. I think the Lord may have shown John the Baptist. Because what does he say about Jesus? I baptise you with water. There is one coming who is far more powerful than me. Whose sandals... I am not even worthy to bend down, stoop down and untie. And he will baptize you with the spirit and with fire. Come on. John knew, I think. (laughs) He's not all that you think he might be. He is far more and far more amazing. This is the devastating glory of Jesus. John falls to his feet as if dead. But friends, there is more to Jesus. As I began to write this next section, genuinely, I'm not often emotional, tears began to well up in my eyes. And the reason I tell you that is because if my words do not do this justice, then forgive me. Because what I am touching on here is so profound, it will change any life that truly comprehends it. Because the very next line says this, this gloriously devastating Jesus, John lying at his feet as if dead, says this, then he placed his right hand on me and said, 
Do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last. Come on. Friends, where was John when Jesus put his hand on his shoulder? Picturing that, John was on the floor. The glorified Jesus to reach his shoulder, to crouch down and stoop and come down to his level and hold him on the shoulder and say, John, don't be afraid. It's me. It's me. I'm the first and the last. I love you and I'm with you. Jesus stoops. This is the incomprehensible humility of our Jesus. In this one action, I think we get one of the most moving glimpses into our Lord and Saviour. It's the God who stoops down to meet us where we're at. The God of glory who reached down to comfort a single broken person. This is what our Jesus does. This is what our gospel is. This is his incomprehensible humility. Even though before him none of us can stand Even though before him all of us lay dead in our sins and shame and muck and guilt, yet at the smallest seed of faith, the tiniest cry, the slightest movement of our heart towards repentance, and the God of all the universe bows low in our presence and stoops down to reach us with his love. It's what he did when he came down from heaven and entered our broken world. It's what he did when he scribbled in the sand before the adulterous woman. It's what he did when he reached out to the leper, to the blind, to the desperate. It's what he did when he let us take him and strip him and mock him and spit at him and abuse him and torture him and drive cruel nails through his hands and feet and kill him. The God of glory did this. It's why the cross is at the heart of our faith. It's why the cross at the heart of the world's only true hope. Sometimes we can get too familiar with it. Sometimes we take it for granted or the cross, oh I know about that. Do we really? Do we really? The king of unstoppable, powerful, thunderously devastating glory, the lord of all the universe. This king of kings that a mucky and cocky, arrogant soldier thump a nail through his hands and spit in his face. He did it to save us. He hung there in agony and disgrace for you and for me. Even when we treated him like dirt. Something we must never grow tired of wondering at. Something I think we'll never truly comprehend. But he stoops to reach you. And he stoops to reach me. What is one of my most favourite all-time lines in a hymn? A writer of Crown and with Many Crowns captures the thought that even the angels of heaven simply cannot comprehend that Jesus would do this for humanity. Crown him the Lord of love. Behold his hands and side. Rich wounds, yet visible above. And beauty glorified. Here it is, no angels in the sky can fully bear that sight. As if they can't even see it. Can't bear to look at it. 
Downward bends each burning eye, mystery so bright. Jesus, stoop so low to meet with you and me. This is our Jesus. This is what he does to dear John. That hand that held the stars, holds the world, the universe, now holds that broken individual. And I'll finish now because I'd like to respond, but he says to John, I'm the first and the last. I'm God. Don't ever think the Bible doesn't tell us that Jesus is God. It does. The first and the last, Isaiah. The Lord only, God himself. I am the first and the last, Jesus says. And I'm with you. You don't need to be afraid. And then he says, I'm the living one, John. I'm the living one. I was dead. But behold, look, John. Look. I am not just alive. I am so alive. And I did it through the cross and the resurrection. And I'm with you, John. And all you're going through, and all the pain and suffering, I'm here. And I love you. Whatever you're going through in your life now, friends, your future and your present is in the hands of Jesus. He stoops down to meet you where you're at. And he loves you. He loves you beyond measure. He suffered for you. And he says to you, do not be afraid. Take courage. I'm with you. I'm with you. Lucy asks, and I'll finish with this, and I'll ask the band to come back. Lucy asks in Narnia, she hears that Aslan's coming, and she says, I think it's to Mrs. Beaver, it might be Mr. Beaver. She says, oh, is he a man? Man? Who said anything about a man? He's a lion. A lion? Yes, a lion. Well, is he safe? No, of course he's not safe. Who said anything about being safe? He's not safe, but he's good. And he's the king, I tell you. Friends, our Jesus isn't safe. He's the king. And he's good. And he utterly loves you. Let him reach down and hold your shoulder this morning and hear his words. I invite you to stand if you're able. Just close your eyes for a moment and I want you just to picture yourself before the glorious, wondrous, Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And I want you to imagine in his presence, it's you who's fallen at his feet. And then what that moment must have been like when John felt a hand on his shoulder. Now you feel that hand. And you realise it's the King of Kings stooping low to meet you. And saying, I am the first and last. Take courage. Take courage. I'm here.
you don't know Jesus yet, but you really do want to, may I say you need to, then this morning's a great opportunity just to give your yes to him, even in your heart now, to just say, yes, Jesus, I do want to live for you. I love you. I put my trust in your hands. I honour you. And if you've been a bit far away, you've struggled, you've sensed the pressure and pain of this life has overwhelmed you, whoever you are this morning, hear Jesus say, I'm the first and the last. Do not be afraid. I hold the keys, all authority of life and death. Put your trust again in me. We're going to worship this Jesus together. We're going to sing meekness and majesty.